Hey everyone, we are finally in October and gearing up for some much needed cooler weather. Hope everyone is doing well. It's Randy Holsey here with Backstage Pass Radio. Today's guest has toured the globe and has supported such acts as YNT, Warrant, Rick Emmett, and many, many more. He is an author, a producer, a web designer, guitar instructor, and one of the best players out there. We're going to head out to Sin City and catch up with Byron Nemeth when we return. This is Backstage Pass Radio, the podcast that's designed for the music junkie with a thirst for musical knowledge. Hi, this is Adam Gordon, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Make sure you like, subscribe, and turn alerts on for this and all upcoming podcasts. And now, here's your host of Backstage Pass Radio, Randy Halsey. All the way from Sin City. Byron, what's going on, brother? How you doing? Randy, I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy Labor Day. I guess we'll get that out of the way real quick. <laughs> oh, yeah. Having a good Labor Day here, just relaxing, doing some grilling, hanging out by the pool, playing some acoustic guitar, and now I'm talking to you. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you. How's the weather in the desert right now? It's super hot, and that's exactly why I'm in the pool, uh, to cool off, and that's the best way to handle the super heat. I hear you. You know, it's all, there's always been this back and forth with people who live in, in my area, Houston, Texas, versus, you know, out there in Vegas. Everybody says, well, that's a that's a dry heat. And it's like, yeah, you're right, but it's still hotter than hell out there. It gets really, really hot in Vegas. And it gets really hot here, too, but it's a wet hot here versus the dry hot there in Vegas. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, my, my personal preference out of the two is definitely the – you know, the dry heat for sure. I, I, I like this climate a lot. I just, you know, I just uh, assimilate really well to it. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, at least in the evenings, you know, you guys, uh, once the sun goes down, it actually cools down really nice in the desert. Yeah. You know, it's it's dry and it, and it almost feels like it cools down versus here. It can be 10 o'clock at night and it's still, you know, 78, 80 degrees, but it feels like 95 just because of the wetness in the air. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly right. And, and going out at night, I really like the lax. I never have to wear a jacket, which is wonderful. That's why I love the Southwest. Absolutely. Now, you moved to the United States when you were young. Share with us the Byron origins, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Uh, this, of course, um, you know, has to include my wonderful parents, Paul Nemeth and Maria Nemeth. They, uh, they were spectacular parents. And I feel so blessed to have had them. And this, and this is the, the story of how I got uh, you know, to, to the United States. Um, let me back up here. Back up to 1956, my father, Paul, he was part of the Hungarian freedom fighters that tried to stop the Soviets from coming into uh coming into Budapest, Hungary, you know, very similar to what we see going on right now over there almost. Absolutely. And uh, because he was a Hungarian national and he was born there and he was brought up there and he tried to stop that, you know, the Soviets were targeting all Hungarian nationals for execution. And that's what they were doing. Interesting. And because of that, he had to leave the country and become a political refugee and leave like overnight immediately. So he's a very young man. This is way before my mom. And, and uh, you know, he, he leaves Hungary overnight, unfortunately. Soviets roll in, they take over, uh, they take over Hungary, you know, up goes the Iron Curtain, and it's a disaster for the next, you know, 40 years. 
So, so he leaves Hungary, comes to the United States, and the State Department ended up uh, making a decision. Why these two cities, I don't know, but that uh, a contingent of the refugees would end up in New York City and in Cleveland. My dad just ended up in Cleveland completely by chance. So he lands there, restarts his life, learns English, goes to college, becomes an engineer, becomes an American success story, which is a wonderful thing that that happened, of course. And in the process, you know, Hungarians and South Americans, um, they, they, they worship soccer. You know, they call it football, but sure. it's soccer. And they'll travel anywhere in the world to, to see a World Cup game. So there's a World Cup game in Mexico. So my father's in Cleveland. He's hanging out with his buddies. He goes to this World Cup game in Mexico. And my mom, who's there from Ecuador, because remember, she's Ecuadorian, she's there with her buddies doing the exact same thing, hanging out, checking out, you know, the World Cup game. He meets her, and he loses his mind, falls in love, and follows her back to South America. And that's when I happen, and I'm born in South America. Okay. Yeah, and then uh, and then I grow up in South America until I was about 10. And then my father brings us back to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and then I grew up in Cleveland in the 80s and 90s, and that's how I ended up in the United States. So, so the family moved once you were born. That's when you guys came back to Ohio then. Correct. And that was uh, the, the Cleveland area. Is that correct? Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in the, uh, I went to high school in Cleveland in, in a specifically smaller town called Lakewood, Ohio. Okay. The west side of Cleveland. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s for sure. And, and what's, what's so great about this, this family story is that out of an unbelievable situation, it happened in Europe. A wonderful family came to be, and it's a it's a it's a beautifully you know positive story. How long were you in the Cleveland area or in Ohio? Till what age? I was there till about 2010. Okay, and made a decision to move to um, Phoenix, Arizona, okay. uh, because I, I really wanted to move to uh, a better climate and wanted to be closer to the West Coast. I had a number of clients in. Uh, web design business here that thought suggested to me that thought that that would be a good idea and it was and I bought a beautiful house in Phoenix I moved there in 2010 and got a lot of stuff done there in about 10 10 11 years did a number of great videos on the west coast did a number of tours and then uh, right after COVID I decided to um, move to Nashville to take my um, career to the next level and I accomplished a really great video there called you know it's true um, and, and my goal was to buy a house in Nashville, but the market last year, and it's still very difficult, but last year was especially difficult. So I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, purchase a house because I kept getting outbid by these corporate buyers. Oh, okay. You know, they'd show up sure. every, uh, every showing and, uh, they wait for the last person and then add another 200 grand to that. And that's what the new price is. Unbelievable situation. Yeah. So my agent said, you've got two choices, either continue running forever, which it's not a good idea, I didn't want to do that, or consider another market. So I considered another market, came to Vegas, found a great agent. We looked around, put in a couple different bids. I found this beautiful condo here in the Silverado Ranch area of Vegas where I live. There was no one else at the table. I bought it immediately. That's why I'm here. Well, I think you, like nine trillion other people, were trying to move into Nashville. I played a show in Nashville in 2020, I guess it was 20, October-ish of 20. And somebody was saying then that it's the fastest growing city in the nation. Like people are just moving there by the 
the truckloads, right? So, so it's probably not a bad move for you. I think, I think Vegas is a pretty good market. I, I would imagine from an entertainment perspective, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And now the setup that I have, Randy, which is a very unique setup, I think, is by by living in Nashville for a year, I established that network. So that network is completely in place of really great studios and producers and musicians and friends that I've come to know there that are now my very, very good friends. And I'll talk about that in more detail in a second. So that network is all is all set up. And now by by moving to Vegas, not only am I a homeowner, which is which which was a huge priority in my life personally, but I also get this market and establishing this market and getting this network set up. In the old days, it used to be New York City and Los Angeles. It has shifted. It's now Nashville and Vegas. Wow. Vegas is a huge entertainment network. Yeah. I mean, absolutely huge. So now I'm, now that I'm uh, setting up that network, I'm going to have the best of both networks. And I feel that by doing so, it's going to be able to elevate my career to the next level. And I'm really glad that this whole turn of events have, have brought me here to, uh, to, you know, to be a homeowner in a great climate and now another great network in, in the number one and number two areas of music business. Yeah. And that's interesting that you say that because now that I think about it and you mention it, of course, uh, of, of course, we still hear about, you know, California and New York, uh, but I don't think it's as prominent as it was, you know, back in the the Sunset Strip days, the 80s. You know, that that was where it was at Hollywood, you know, the Sunset Strip, you know, it was huge. Of course, there was the East Coast scene, you know, uh, out of Long Island and, and up in that area, which was really big. And I'm not saying that those aren't big anymore. But all you hear these days, it seems like Nashville, Nashville, Nashville. And the crazy thing is a lot of the rock stars are moving to Nashville. We used to think about Nashville as the, the cowboy town or the, the hat and boot town, right? But there's, there's a lot of rockers that live in Nashville, correct? Correct me if I'm wrong there. That's, that's exactly correct. Yeah. It's an everything music city. There's everything happening there. Yeah. Besides the traditional and pop country, there's everything happening there from hip hop to metal to rock to jazz to classical. I mean, everything. Well, I'm sure that it probably has the the largest conglomeration of badass players there, right? I mean, yes. I, I mean, surely everybody goes there, whether they're a country picker or a. I shouldn't say I shouldn't limit my what I'm saying to just guitar players, but. Uh, musicians in general, whether they're drummers or bass players or keyboard players or whatever, I, I would think that that is just a smorgasbord of talent out there, without a doubt. It is. It one hundred percent is, and there's a there's a ton of great talent here in in Vegas too. I'm sure there is. So many of the LA guys, producers and players, you know, uh, if they didn't move to Nashville, they moved here. Yeah, yeah, so, interesting. So it's it's two burgeoning markets of. Uh, of a, just a, a lot of talent, yeah. You know, a lot of studio talent, a lot of producer talent, a lot of playing talent. Yep. And 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 Vegas as a whole is just a big entertainment city. It you know, really is. Entertainment going on twenty four seven. That's slightly different than than Nashville, just because of the nature of what Vegas is. So Absolutely. That, that just creates a big a big vibe, a big energy, if you will, for. Uh, producing great shows and big events and trying to just be, you know, 
be be in a location where you can you know do a career launch, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Now let, let's walk back to uh, Cleveland for just a minute. You went to Cleveland University, correct? Right. Walk the listeners through the focus at at Cleveland University when you were attending there. Um, well, I only went there uh, for about three months. Okay. It was in that process where I figured out that the destiny of my life was going to be in being an entrepreneur and not following the traditional path of super formalized long-term education. Makes sense. Yep. All all of my heroes in life, like uh, Richard Branson that has, you know, run Virgin Music, Virgin Airlines, Virgin everything. And uh, Steve Jobs that, you know, has, you know, has run Apple. You know, all of my heroes in life are entrepreneurs, so they all had a vision and a path, and it almost never involved formal education. So I quit Cleveland okay. State. I was I was thinking that you might have uh, gone there and were studying music. I wasn't sure what you had originally gone there for, but was it music? Is it safe to say? I, yeah, it was definitely music, and that, that you know part of it. A little bit, it was great. It had you know great guitar teachers, and that was super helpful at that time period. Um, but in terms of pursuing a, a degree situation. Yeah, I decided that's not what I want to do. To me, it was very clear that computers were coming in to society and that they were going to be a very big part of society and that I needed to understand them more than pursuing a traditional path. And I'm not saying people shouldn't go to school. I'm not saying that I think everyone should be as well-educated as possible. But for myself, I just knew what I wanted to do. So I wanted to pursue that path, and I learned computers, and I learned technology, and I knew that I could have... uh, I could have... um, a path forward by uh, studying computers and studying web design that would be able to um, allow me to have a great career that now I've had for over 12 years. Awesome. And, and then the beauty of, of that is that that knowledge of technology and of building websites just helps me directly with what I do in music and my, my web stuff and getting myself out on social media. And it's the same gear, the same computer gear, the exact same thing that helps me do web stuff and helps me do music stuff. So it just, it's a wonderful symbiotic choice of, of careers to have that help each other tremendously. Sure. Well, I, I want to get into a little bit more of the technology with you shortly, but we talk about, you know, be, you, you being a guitarist and, you know, the studying of music over the years. When did you actually pick up the guitar? Was it at a pretty young age for you or was it later on? When I was five. So that was pretty young. (laughs) My parents turned me on to Elvis Presley, and that was the beginning of it all. (laughs) That's all it took, right? You know, they were fans. They were not musicians, but they were fans of music and super supportive of everything I was doing, which is why I love them so much. And um, that's that's how I started into music as a fan, and then – you know, from the from from Elvis, it went to the Beatles, and then from Beatles, it went to you know Van Halen, and it just kept going on from there. You picked up the guitar really early at at the age of five. When did when did formal lessons start for you? Do you remember? Yeah, formal formal lessons started when I was about you know sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old. I had three really great teachers when I was going to Cleveland State. And um, they were wonderful. I had a classical guitar teacher, a jazz guitar teacher, and a rock guitar teacher. And I picked those three on purpose just to have different, you know, ideas come into my my thoughts about how music can and possibly could be played. So that was super helpful. And it just 
once I had that start, I just kept going. You mentioned uh, a couple of very well-known artists in, in Elvis and the Beatles. And specific to, I guess, guitar heroes growing up. Now, when I think of Elvis and I think of the Beatles, I think of them more in a kind of a, a group in my mind. But if you were to single out guitar players for just a second, who was doing it for you as kind of your guitar hero from, you know, from the formidable years when you were just getting into the guitar? Who was encouraging, not encouraging you, but who were you looking up to from a playability standpoint? And who, who did you want to be like, you know, when you were young? In, in the rock realm, the hard rock metal realm, for sure there was two guitar players, and that was uh, Eddie Van Halen, that first Van Halen album. Devastating. Oh, my God. It was yes. just unbelievably fabulous. Mm-hmm. It changed everything. And uh, Randy Rose. Okay, yeah. Quiet Riot, Ozzy Osbourne, sure. Uh, you know, a super well, um, classically trained, educated guitar player that brought those sensibilities into his playing, just like, and just like Van Halen too, uh, where he was more of a spontaneous genius, whereas Randy was more of a focused genius. Sure. I could categorize him in that way. You know, they're both geniuses in their own way. But in, in rock, it was definitely those two guitar players. And then there was other guitar players in other forms of music that I completely loved too, like um, Al Miola in, in jazz fusion circles. Yeah, you know? for sure. It's incredible. And then other musicians of tremendous talent like Miles Davis in jazz, just as a fan listening to that, that influ- literally influenced me on guitar or John Coltrane before my time, but just as an education source for my ears, you know? And Absolutely. It's a knowledge base to just know about music. And same thing with, with classical composers like, you know, Mozart and Beethoven and Bach and, and, and all of them. Yeah. Really. Now, Randy Rhodes, of course, you know, everybody loves any guitarist would say they love Randy Rhodes and Eddie Van Halen. Uh, they, Randy Rhodes was huge for me, probably even more so than Eddie Van Halen. Uh, just loved his style of play, and, but but a huge fan of both of those. Now, those were the ones that kind of did it for you kind of coming up. Are there players today, like in your adulthood years, right, that are doing it for you, that, that you are kind of digging or vibing on these days? There are many that I have found on YouTube by chance. And there's just so many. There are so many great players at such a very young age today. It's just astonishing how good they are. Um, In terms of any of them being like what would be quote unquote considered a famous band that anybody knows, no one that I can point out to exactly because there's just so many of them. Yeah. There really are. Isn't it funny how 20... 30 years ago, you know, when you were, I think you and I are probably not too far off from being the same age, but you know, back when I was learning the guitar, it was pop the cassette tape in, rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play. And you just heard it over and over and over again until you just went back and you mimic, you, you kind of mimicked it right now. Fast forward to the internet age, you've got tablature, you've got all, you know, you've got YouTube and, you know, where it might take guys like you and I as young kids coming up a couple of weeks to really 
dial a, a guitar song or, you know, a song in general or learn a song, now these kids are, they're learning it in a day and they're just spectacular players. I mean, I see kids out there that are like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old that are like just polished beyond their years. It's crazy, right? Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I, I think the, the plus side of that is that it's giving them a jump start on technique and on how to be brilliant on their instruments from a from a, a, a just a strong technique perspective. My my wonderment though, thinking long term here, is where are they going to be at as songwriters? I'm sure there are more songwriters out there now, of course, because of the internet, and that's totally great. But I think that's important too because you can't just focus on technique. You need to kind of focus on both. Absolutely. To be a well-rounded artist, I think, and some just seem only to be focusing on technique, and you have no idea where their compositions are. And then there's some others that are great composers that don't really focus on technique at all. I agree. You've seen those too, right? Sure. I think today in today's world, you really need to really have both. You do. You do. Really? Now, now, did you come from a musical family were, were mom and dad musical people uh instrumentalist or were they not like for me m- my mom was a pianist uh but but dad never did anything really with music how about you did you did you have that musical background growing up no i did not my my parents uh, were not musicians but they were unbelievably supportive and loving for me to want to pursue musically they were absolutely fans of music you know, they were huge Elvis fans for sure. And they appreciated the Beatles and they appreciated, you know, music from their era and music from their own countries too, you know, their own ethnic countries. So they were absolutely lovers of music, but they were not musicians themselves, but they were, they fully encouraged me to get into it as a musician and to pursue it all the way, you know, which I feel very thankful for. Sure. And I think that that's probably just imp- as important is them actually being musicians, right? Playing an instrument. I mean, if you've got the love for the music, then you've almost got to support, you know, your kid when he says, I want to learn the guitar, or I want to learn the violin, or whatever the instrument of choice is. If you really love music, you'll never deny the learning of that instrument, right? Exactly right. Um, so I, I wanted to take the listeners. So for the listeners that maybe haven't heard of you, I, I wanted to share a couple of clips of your music. The, the first one I'd like to share is a song called Everybody Knows, and this is, a I, I believe, an older song that you did, but I wanted to share an older one and then a newer one. So I, I'm going to share a clip of Everybody Knows, and then we'll come back and chat about it. Fair enough? That's good. Awesome.
That was a clip of Byron's song, Everybody Knows. And, and if my if my math is correct, Byron, you correct me if I'm wrong. That, I believe, came out somewhere around 2014. Does that correct. sound about right to you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everybody Knows is, uh, is part of a four-song EP called the, the Video Chronicles. And the Video Chronicles uh, has... Uh, a video to go with each song, which is why I called it that. And it was recorded at uh, Steve Vai's studio out in the Hollywood Hills. And it features uh, two members of his ba- band, Philip Bino on bass and Jeremy Carlson on drums. And on vocals, it's Mark Bowles, who used to be the lead singer of Ingve Malmsteen. And the songs are uh, written by me. I wrote all the music and all the lyrics and directed the focus and was executive producer along with uh, studio producer and engineer Greg Worth. Awesome. And it was a great time, great experience. Nice. And what would you say is the kind of the first ingredient for you when it comes to songwriting? Are you the, you hear the melody? Do you start with music? Like what is the first ingredient typically for you? I know it's not the same every time, but what's the formula for you in writing music? The groove of the song and how it's feeling just with the guitar with no other instruments as I'm in the middle of composing it. The groove is is kind of where I start with it. The, the song has to have a great chorus hook to it and a very interesting verse. And, and just a great groove of transitions between verse and chorus, verse, chorus to bridge, to the solo, to the chorus. And, and I think that's the most important thing, because if you don't have that vibe, that groove, you don't have uh, the beginnings of a good song. And then after you've got that established and it literally feels good to you, then you find points each of the sessions in terms of the music and then certainly in terms of the lyrics and the vocal melodies. That makes perfect sense. I, I wanted to share with the listeners a clip of another song called You Know It's True. Uh, this was a song that was released, uh, I believe, just recently, like September of this year, correct? Last September, yeah. Last, that, okay. Last September. And that was recorded at Blackbird Studios in Nashville. Blackbird is a beautiful studio complex. It's owned by John and Martina McBride, who, as you know, are in the country music business. Martina McBride, super successful in country business. And John runs the studio, her husband. And in, uh, in this particular song and video, um, I found some really great players in Nashville and a really great producer named Tim Dolber that helped me put the whole song together. And uh, it came out pretty stellar, I thought. Yeah, for sure. We're going to take a quick uh, listen to that, and we'll be right back.
That was a clip of You Know It's True by Byron Nemeth. Uh, great song there, Byron. Lyrically, where do you, I'm sure it's all over the map, but lyrically, where do you pull inspiration from? I, I guess that comes from all different places sometimes, right? comes from all different places. And, and what I like, like to do with my lyrics is I'd like to emphasize, you know, a, a positive forward leaning, you know, thought process on whatever the topic is. Every song can have a different topic, of course, but most of the time, you know, they're about just moving forward and, and doing good, positive things in your life and, 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 and just, you know, taking control and, and just being in a good position uh, where where you can have a good outcome, and that's that's a very broad stroke definition. Absolutely. The specificness of each song has its own flavor and twist to it, but uh, that's that's where I'd like to take it. I want to leave a a good mark in this world. I know that most artists don't don't like to be put in a box and don't like to be labeled for the music that they make from a I guess a genre perspective. In your own words, how would you describe your music? What is in your wheelhouse? How would you describe that music? I would definitely, you know, say it's definitely hard rock, uh, definitely uh, metal for sure. Uh, sometimes prog rock and sometimes instrumental rock too. Okay, so it's it's definitely in the in the wheelhouse of you know rock and roll, leaning into the into the hard rock, heavy metal arena. Progressive rock at times too, certainly. Yeah, and I was I was thinking that very word. I was thinking um, when I asked that question, I was thinking progressive. Like that's it. It's one of the, I guess, genres that come to mind, or that style of music, kind of in the, along the progressive lines. Absolutely too. And, and one thing that I've been doing is, is is I've played a lot of progressive stuff in the past and a lot of instrumental stuff too in the past. But recently, like within these past recent three, four, five songs, especially the new one that I'm working on literally right now, I've been really focusing on on really strong, catchy choruses and hooks. Nothing wrong with being progressive, but maybe a little less of that now and more more just strong hooks because yeah. I'm trying to bring the people in with catchy music and, and get them back to an atmosphere where they're enjoying themselves and enjoying a great song on a summer night and just loving hearing it by the pool. You yeah. know, I'm trying to get the vibe to happen, you know, it's a, a little bit of a fun vibe to happen with the songwriting. Cause sometimes things in this world can be so serious. I think it's important to, to bring that vibe back with a lot of blazing guitar and just get back to a time, time frame and place where we, you know, can enjoy life a little more and enjoy the music. Right on. No, I, I don't disagree with that. And, I think that it could be any genre of music that you're just thumbing through the radio stations and you hear that hooky song. And even if you're not a rap guy or a, you know, a country guy or whatever, if you hear that hook and it catches you, the genre doesn't even matter. Right. Or the type of music. So when you say I focus more trying to get the hook in the music, uh, catch the listeners. I mean, I think that that's where it's at. That's where, hit songs come from, right? Hooky songs or hit songs at the end of the day. Absolutely. And that comment dovetails exactly into what I wanted to chat about for a second here. And that's uh, my, my brand new song that is not out yet. It's called uh, uh, Get What You Need. And because of uh, the, the current, you know, 
algorithms, if you will, as to how Spotify and YouTube deliver music and all of these, you know, DSPs and how they deliver music, uh, it's turning into a singles-based market. It's kind of going back to the way it was in the 50s. And, and, and as much as I love Prague, and trust me, I'm a diehard Rush fan completely. I love Rush, love long songs and everything, you know, 30-minute songs. Uh, but I think where it's at right now for artists, and especially where it's at for my music now, is I'm focusing on playing a little shorter songs, about four-minute songs with strong hooks, really interesting lyrics, interesting verses that uh, that really give a, a, a uniquely delivered musical statement um, as a single and as a video. And I think that's that's kind of how I'm feeling the market from a technology point of view, how the delivery systems are are trying to get music out there for artists. Um, today, to be a, a band like Rush and put out 30-minute songs, even though some are certainly doing it, and it's great that they're trying, I think it's just a difficult sell with, sure. with Spotify giving you higher algorithm rankings if your song is shorter. Yeah. That's across the board for all styles, yeah. no matter what you do. Now, there's a, there's a place for the songs like Enagata De Vida and The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, these songs that are just... Right. Wonderful songs, but they're ass whippings. They go on for six, seven, eight, <laughs> nine minutes, right? And you're like, it's like, is this song ever going to end? So I, I think, yeah, the the hooky, the short songs, those are those seem to be what's very popular right now. You yeah. you talked a little bit about John and Martina McBride being in their studio studios, uh, Steve Vai studio, but I was reading somewhere about. Did you have some involvement at Abbey Road as well? Did you do something there? And can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I've been there. I've been there three times, and not outside of it, but inside of it as a client, and and that's been an amazing experience. First time was in '97. A friend of mine who used to work for Yamaha Instruments got me a personal tour. They don't they don't give tours, by the way. You just can't show up and, okay. and get it. Yeah, so you have to get that prearranged. And that was the first time I was there and just blew me away. An incredible studio. And all the studios I've been in are freaking fabulous studios, but sure. Abbey Road is just another level. And um, it was super, super great time. And I got to go into all of the, all of the studios because it's a complex. It's not one studio. It's a big complex with many studios inside of it. And I got to check it out. And then in 2004, I returned... Uh, uh, to master an album there with Nick Webb, who uh, I, I also saw in 2007. Uh, the 2004 album was an album called 100 Worlds, and the 2007 album um, was called The Force Within. Okay. And both of them were mastered at Abbey Road, and I mastered them with, with Nick in uh, Mastering Room 7, um, which is a really, really great mastering room at the top of the, the Abbey Road complex. Nick started his career as a tracking engineer with the Beatles and then moved on to become a mastering engineer later on in his career. And he mastered a bunch of stuff for Queen and a bunch of uh, bands like Duran Duran and a bunch of great al albums that he did. And his credentials were pretty impeccable. And just seeing him do that with my stuff was an amazing experience. It really was. I have to think that there had to be some hair on the arm raising experiences be, being over there, right? And I only say that as I was in Studio B in Nashville, you know, the same studio that the Everly Brothers wrote a lot of hit songs in. Elvis wrote a ton of songs in Studio B. And to just be in that same room where some of the greats have been, 
and some of the greatest music of our time was recorded was a very moving experience for me. And I would have to think that you were probably had to have been kind of like a kid in a candy store over over there. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but am I far off base there by making that assumption? No, you're totally right. You know, that's exactly what it was. And it was like a, like being in a dream. It's what, it's the only way I could, I could place it, you know, and many people visit Abbey Road and, and are outside by the crosswalk and, visit and go by and that you know obviously we've all done that but to be inside and be working on a project it's just it's amazing pretty pretty amazing you know one of the songs um on the force within it was it's a 10th song it's uh instrumental original album but one of them was a remake of i am the walrus which is also the video from the album and when we got to mastering that that was especially you know spine tingling and it was just just beyond moving to say the least it was great totally great i could imagine so have you been thinking that you may need a little exercise in your daily routine while having a little fun doing it i may have the solution hey it's randy holsey here with backstage pass radio and about six months ago i purchased an electric bike from ecotrick and just thought about using it as a way to kind of get the blood flowing a few days a week. And to my surprise, I find myself on the bike just about every day. Not only am I getting a little exercise each day, but I'm also having a fun time seeing the neighborhood and maybe some areas that I probably would never have seen before I got the bike. Today, my family owns four of these EcoTrick bikes and we're looking to add a few more soon. Make sure to check out the link in the description below for more details. I wanted to talk just for a few minutes about uh, a couple of other side hustles that you have going on. And the first one I'd like to talk about is a little bit about guitar instruction. Can you share with the listeners what you're doing by way of guitar instruction and how people may be able to contact you if you're teaching and to, to, you know, maybe get on your radar for lessons, that kind of thing? Yeah, there's, there's two areas uh, that have uh, flourished since I, I got here to Las Vegas. Um, and and one, is, uh, one area is in, in being a published author. I have a brand new book out that's available on Amazon that people can get right from my website, byronnemeth.com. And uh, that's a beautifully artwork book that details with uh, everything that you need to know with, with playing guitar. It's called The Zen, The Art of Guitar Playing, and, and it's, it's available there right now. How much work goes into writing something like The Zen of Guitar? Usually about a year. Okay. <laughs> I try, I try to make it sooner than that, but it just doesn't, it just never seems to work out. It, it takes, takes about a year to pull it all together because there's just so much I want to put into it. And at the same time, I, I want to keep it a smooth, easy read. That's important, by the way, for uh, being able to, I think, you know, publish uh, at least method books. Sure. Certainly all the types of fiction books could be an ex- extremely, you know, extensive read, but I'm not doing fiction, at least not with this. This is um, much more of a a method book, and it just took me about a year to do each one, and this is the second one. Okay, yeah, I was going to say there's two volumes out, and I think both of those are for sale, or you can get them on Amazon too, correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. 
Yeah, if you, if you go to my website, you can you can see the button right there. Okay. That's right in the middle. The, the Zen of Guitar. Yep. The Zen of Guitar, Understanding Guitar Through Direct Intuition, Volume 2. And Volume 2 is the one that just came out. And um, it's doing very well. It's got a really cool cover on it. And that cover is also part of my merchandise line that uh, you can see here. Yeah, love it. Yeah. And for, so the, for the listeners, he's showing a, a shirt. And I'm assuming that, that that is designed by yourself, correct? No, it nope. is not. Yeah, it is not. Just just like with uh, my music, I don't produce myself and I don't do my own artwork, even though I have done that for clients in my web business. I want to keep that that aspect of it separate. different. Separate, yeah, because yeah. I, I want to see how other people view what I'm doing because I'm taking this very seriously as, a, as fine art. And, and I want to hear another set of ears when I'm doing music, which is why I work with Greg Worth and Tim Dolbear you know, respectively in Los Angeles and, and in Nashville. And, and, uh, and same thing for my book, obviously I'm composing the book and I'm the author of it. But as far as the artwork for the book, I hired my friend Timo Juarez from Germany who did the artwork uh, uh, for the video chronicles to do the artwork for this. Cause I wanted to get his take on how he was viewing me as a guitar instructor yeah. on purpose. And, and that turned into the, the t-shirt line that I have out now that's doing, doing really well. And I'm, very thankful for that. And that's also available off of my website. And then the, the other thing that I'm doing with guitar education is Guitar Center approached me. They called me when they found out I had come to live to Vegas to come and teach for them. So I'm also I'm also teaching here locally at Guitar Center at the Summerlin store. Summerlin store. Okay. And that's that's going really well. Saturdays are all completely booked now and we're adding an, another uh, few days. What about from a do you do anything virtually? Like somebody could call you and say, Hey Byron, I'd like to take zoom lessons with you. Or is that not a preference or is that a preference? And is that an option for people? Oh, that's, that's certainly an option for people. And I still do that. I have, I have a number of uh, clients, guitar clients in uh, Phoenix when I used to live in Phoenix that I used to teach them personally that I te- now teach through zoom. And I'm glad you cleared that up about, you know, your artwork, your, your book art, your, that type of thing, because I was going to assume that being the, the the technologist that you are, that you would have had the tools that you would have designed your your own stuff. So so thank you for clearing me up on that. I didn't want to assume anything. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like like myself for my show, I, I developed my my own artwork. So I just assume that everybody does that, right? So not a fair assumption on my part. I think a lot of people do, and that's totally fine that they do, and some are fabulous at it, and that's wonderful. But but for me, I definitely did not want to do that just because I, 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 I'm so close to the music in terms of composing the music and trying to, you know, establish a new band and record it, that to be producer on top of that, and just like the book, so close to writing the book, that to be an artist for the book on top of that, it's almost like too, too much. No, I and, get it. No, I get and, it. And I want to have time to do the composition aspect and the business management aspect for it all and, and adding, you know, producer aspect and artist aspect on top of that, you know, fine, fine artists is what I meant aspect to that would have been just, just too much. Yeah. Plus, plus I, you know, when you work with people that just are so good at what they do, like my producers, um, you know, in LA and in Nashville, 
you know, Tim and Greg, they're just such great producers. You want them involved. Yes. You want another set of ears. You want to bounce something off of what you're doing because to be producer yourself and you're just too much into it yourself and, you, and you, there's no reflection and you need some reflection when you're creating music and you want an honest answer. And that's super important. Same, same thing with the, you know, the, uh, the, the cover of the book. I wanted Timo's involvement because he's, he's like a Michelangelo of his artwork. He's just I get so it. good. You know? I get it. I get it. From, from a, from a web design, I know you have uh you do, web design uh, out in Vegas as well. Talk to the listeners a little bit about that gig and, you know, what you bring to the table from a, from a web design perspective. What do you do for the clients? Yeah. I, uh, for my clients, I do basically whatever that they need for their business. And I have all different clients at all different levels. And 99% of my clients are, have nothing to do with music. They're not in the music business at all. They're, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're real estate companies, they're medical companies. And um, I do professional web design development work for them. And that's a wonderful career to have. I've been doing it for over 12 years now, and I'm fully licensed here in Nevada as an LLC, and it's the whole nine yards. What is the program of, of choice for designing a web page these days? And the reason I ask that is back when I was a more of a technical guy on the engineering side, I was teaching Microsoft curriculum at a local college here as an adjunct instructor. And this was back in the HTML days, right? Uh, front page, Microsoft front page, HTML. What is the primary language that websites are developed in these days? Hopefully I'm asking my question correctly. Yeah. Right? yeah. The answer is that there's many. Okay. Oh, there's many. There really is. And you almost can do yourself a favor by specializing in one or two and having a little knowledge of almost everything else because no one can know it all. No. There's just much. I agree. There's much software coming into um into building structures on the net on a daily basis. And there's just such an abundance of it all that it's good to kind of specialize in a few things. When WordPress came into prominence in the 90s, Joomla was the big thing back then. I don't know if you at all remember that, but Joomla since has been sunset, sunsetted and WordPress has now become you know, one of the PHP language uh, building platforms to build on. And that's, that's specialty that I do. And why I picked that one is because it's so scalable. You can make a one page site. You can make a 10,000 page site. You can make a hundred page website. It's fully scalable for e-commerce and the third party plugins that are available are just unbelievably great these days that further scales the website to, to do whatever you need it to budget wise depends on what the client has in mind. Sure. So a small website can be developed, you know, for a couple thousand dollars. And then the ceiling's the limit on the other end. Absolutely. What is Five, ten, twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars. I've worked on websites that are hundreds of thousand dollars, thousands of dollars, and I'm part of a team yep. that is part of the build. That makes sense. They're so big. So it's all relative to what the client needs and to what they want. And then to help my music friends out there, if they're on a very limited budget and they just want to get started, you know, use Wix. Wix is a great platform. You can do it yourself, very inexpensive. Yep. And it's a good starting point just to get yourself started and going out there and getting, getting your music out there. And then if 
if you can down the road, you know, upgrade to custom WordPress, you know, hire a developer, don't do it yourself because you won't have the time, you know, and, and then take it at that level once the career goes at that level. And that's one of the advantages of that, that I feel, you know, I, I have with what I'm doing by being a developer. That's one huge, and at this point, it'd be like really huge payment that I don't have to pay anybody else because I'm doing all that for myself now. Absolutely. If I were to put a value on my website throughout the years for what I've put into it, what hundred grand easy, easy, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's time and customization and making it all perfect and everything. So. Absolutely. And I use WordPress for mine. Mine has become more static these days than anything. There's not really much dynamic content to it, you know, other than updating some pictures or, you know, a show schedule or something like that. But, you know, it was all built in, in WordPress some right. years back. Um, you, you, you talked about being able to do, you know, guitar lessons and whatnot virtually, but you also serve as a producer, right? And I, and I think that folks can hire you from a, a, a producer perspective as well, correct? Can you speak to that yeah. a little bit? Yeah, totally. And, and that would be in essentially two areas. If you're in the Vegas area, then I can certainly be a producer at any studio of, of choice, and uh, that, that way we can meet face-to-face and I can help out in that perspective. And then um, if you're remotely, how I can help with my studio here at home is I'm a mixing studio. I'm a Pro Tools HD uh, Logic mixing studio and I've got all of the, all of the bells and whistles for uh, all of the plugins for that here. So I can mix in mine and I can track a guitar in mine. Okay. Help out anyone at a distance in that capacity. And so depending, depending on who you are and where you're at, I can help out in those two various ways. Yeah, I guess the uh, Pro Tools, that's kind of the de facto standard in the industry, right, for, for most professional producers. Is, is, is that a fair assumption? It still is, but it's becoming less and less simply because there's other alternatives like Logic that are just becoming great. Yeah. Logic and Ableton, and they're way cheaper, and third-party plugins are way, way cheaper. Okay. That's one thing that, that uh, Avid, who now owns Pro Tools, is going to have to address because the costs of their third-party plugins are just still too expensive, I think, and their high-end systems are still a little too expensive, and there's just more more choice these days. And as you know, with choice, competition forces price down. Yep. So I think we're at probably the beginning of the ending stages of the golden era of Pro Tools, probably. Well, I was, I was going to say that I've used Cubase forever because it came with a device that I bought some years back, but I was looking to maybe change that. And I, and I've seen a lot of stuff about Ableton lately. Like I, I'm assuming that they're probably one of the, the, the better dolls out there. Like uh, they, they've got a lot of awards or one of a lot of awards. And it seems like there's a lot of, they always rank in the top five somewhere, you know? So uh, I don't know if you have an opinion about Ableton or not, but uh, I'm sure they're. I think it's excellent. I think it's totally excellent. Are you producing a specific style of music or do you just need something? Just wide? in general. Yeah. Broad are stroke. You, are you a Mac guy? I, I am PC. I, I have a MacBook, but I really don't do anything on it. I'm, I'm, I'm Windows based, though. Okay, got it. Because if you were a Mac guy, I would have suggested uh, Logic. Okay. Okay. But if you're a PC, yeah, Ableton will work, will work fine for sure. All right. Yeah. Well, if we shift gears just for a minute, uh, I wanted to talk about the guitar specifically with you. Is there a go-to 
not not a brand, but a more of a specific guitar that you like to record with, or are you kind of all over the map with it? Just depends on what you're playing, depending on the type of guitar you use. Can you talk a little bit about specific guitars and maybe is there a brand that you're really married to versus any other brand of guitar? Yeah, right now, by the way, I view this question in two different contexts, the recording studio context okay. and then the live band concert context. So let's, let's chat about the recording studio context. For recording r- rhythm guitars only, just rhythm guitars, I really love my... Um, Gibson Les Paul Ace Frilly model, the three pickup one. Okay. Or, you know, it's a, a Les Paul custom with three pickups. It's the classic one he he had on the Alive Two album. It's it's that guitar, and um, it's beautiful for recording really thick, meaty, beefy r- rhythms that play well against the bass guitar and the drums in a studio session. Okay. Just big fat rhythms, and it's wonderful for that. Live wise, two reasons I don't like to play it live is number one, I don't want, I don't like taking it out of the house because it's too precious, <laughs> and and number two, it's really heavy guitar. Yeah. So so playing it all night tends to just kind of wear you down because it's such a heavy guitar, but it sounds great. But it's just a heavy guitar, so because that and the security aspect of it all, I like to save that guitar for you know rhythms in the studio, and then for leads in the studio, and these two guitars are the same ones that I would use live for concerts, uh, that would be um, uh, the brand new new one that I got, which is a Charvel Jakey Lee model guitar. It's a super strap and it's just a kick-ass guitar. One knob, uh, royal purple mirror pickguard, and uh, there's there's no whammy unit on it whatsoever. It's a stop tail piece and it just sounds great. And then the other one that I have is the Adrian Smith Signature. Jackson, very okay. similar to the Charvel. And that one has a silver pickguard and that does have a Floyd Rose along with a Van Halen D tune for doing these crazy dive bombs. Yeah. And those two guitars work well for live and recording too. They're great recording guitars also. And they work they work especially well for live because they're not super heavy guitars. They're light and and I don't know why, but live wise, and this may sound funny in some ways, but live wise I've been just channeling Jeff Beckmore. <laughs> so, so I've been just feeling his Strat style guitar live-wise yeah. more. And I know that sounds silly, but just feeling that, you know? We feel our guitars, I think. I get it. I get it. Well, it's it's interesting that you said that about the weight of that Les Paul. My son Brandon had purchased a Les Paul signature a year or two back, and I went and threw it around my neck, and I'm like, holy shit, this thing is heavy like you know it is a heavy guitar and i could imagine if you're playing a two-hour show or two and a half three-hour show even it uh, i would think that it would wear on you at the end of the night for sure totally absolutely and and that and plus the security aspect of knowing not knowing where your guitar is at backstage or anywhere you know it's a little unsettling isn't it (laughs) how about a your favorite girlfriend don't don't touch my girlfriend (laughs) exactly don't let her out of your sight uh what about a string of choice for you is there a go-to string of choice for you on all the guitars or do you do you change it up across guitars talk to me a little bit about that i got hybrid slinkies on all of them they've got the lower bottom end they work work real well yeah that's why i like 
Yep. Okay. And what about what about from a pedal perspective? Are you are you a certain type of pedal guy? Um, at the moment, and it, it, it kind of seems to change with the seasons sometimes. But at the moment, I'm using the Hughes and Katner uh, Spirit Floorboard 200 and all-in-one amp unit that's got all the effects all built right in. I'm not using a head at all. It's it's floorboard directly to the cabinet, and it's all contained in my pedal board along with my wireless. Um, I, I've been a Morley endorser for a really long time, been using that, and I'm using their latest their latest pedal, uh, and it's just great sounding rig. Can't wait to you know show it to people live. Yeah, absolutely. And what about from an acoustic perspective? Do you do you play much on the acoustic, or yeah. or are you you yeah, primarily a, an electric guy these days? So I play a lot of acoustic. I have a a, a Martin DC fifteen E, and that's a cutaway acoustic Martin with a built in pickup. Great for doing clean clean stuff in recordings or even playing live if I wanted to. And that's a wonderful guitar. And then I have a, a, a Gypsy Jazz Flamingo Ramirez uh, with specific Gypsy Jazz strings for that Gypsy Jazz sound. You know, Gypsy Jazz guitars have the smaller smaller hole and their bigger body and they're more louder vocal guitars and you have to play them more aggressively with a different pick. And it's a style of playing than classical or or acoustic action gotcha gotcha i wanted to give you the platform real quick uh, to talk about anything that may be new and exciting for you as it relates to music technology producing anything come to mind for you that you'd like to share with the listeners maybe giving them a heads up on something new coming out from you or or whatever the case may be yeah, absolutely. I'm working on a brand new song right now called Get What You Need. It has all of the, the, the vibe and the format of what we discussed before, a four-minute song with great hooks, great energy, great in-your-face Van Halen guitar style, you know, tones to it. And it's going to be um, hopefully uh, recorded in the oncoming months. I'm putting together a new band for it. The song is written, lyrics are written. And now I'm in the middle of auditioning a, a, a couple of great drummers and bass players for it. And I'm going to be working with a great singer here in Vegas. No names to be revealed just yet, but I will soon. And what I want to do is a two-step goal, and that is to come out with a live band, do a one-hour set, and hit, hit, uh, hit the strip running, and then immediately record the song. The song is, is ready and ready to go. And as soon as I find the right guys, we'll start playing out, and then immediately you know, record the single, put out a video. Cause with every song now I'm thinking singles and that means video. So mm-hmm. single, video, single video, yep. that's the business methodology that I'm thinking. And I think that'll, uh, that'll garner the best results from, uh, you know, the, the social media sphere where everybody has the attention span, span of a gnat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. You know, put all of your energy into one song with great video and just work it. You know, you give someone 12 songs, went by them yeah it's funny how that's changed over the years you know back in the back in the day it was buy the album and listen to it from top to bottom right and and learn to love all the songs hopefully you love all the songs now it's cherry pick one off of an album or just buy the single right it's changed and and now in so many ways it's almost like recorded music has become the lost leader to bring people in to see the concerts yes it's kind of done Exactly. You know, 60 from the old days. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's just a very odd situation it in is. some way. But it's a whole new different music business. 
And then with touring, and tell me your thoughts on this, Randy, for unknown acts, this whole business, if you're third or fourth down on the bill, and I'm talking a touring situation, not a one-off locally, you know how you, you, it's a situation of where you have to do these buy-ons and buy on to these tours, and sometimes buy on at a very expensive price. What are your thoughts on that? I kind of find that a bit disturbing. I, you know, I really don't, I don't really have a comment one way or another on it because from where I am musically, I don't go down that path and I don't have a reason to, so I've never had to do it. And to be honest with you, I haven't, I think that I've had some artists on my show that have probably been subjected to that or have done it, but we, it never came up in conversation. So I don't, I guess I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. What, I mean, if I spin the question back around on you, what, what are your thoughts around it? Like it's, it's kind of new to me, right? Yeah. The thoughts on it are, if you're an unknown act, you're trying to get your presence out there uh, by being able to actually tour and do cities but you don't have a record label that can finance this, this scenario that I'm describing and you, you're doing it yourself. There's opportunities, if you want to call it that, of where you can buy on to a tour by paying X amount of dollars. And I'm not going to use any names here, but paying X amount of dollars to get on so-and-so's tour so that you open up for them. Okay. And the thought process here is that you get a chance to um, uh, showcase yourself you on know, their name, on their name, on, right? On their name on a 20, 30, 40 city tour. But the cost to get on is pretty substantial, five figures sometimes, if not more. And and then and then the question is, after that run is done, what do you get in return besides the experience? I don't know if those people that are fans of the other band come to you and and become your yeah. fans. No, that that makes sense, and I, and I understand, I understand why they would do it for sure. I mean, I think it's a quick way to maybe get that notoriety or to get your name out there. You know, I mean, if you come through town with Ario Speedwagon and you're attached to that bill, right? How many people actually do remember the opening act? I mean, sometimes they're 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 forgotten, uh, but. Exactly my question. Remember, you're playing your early. You're playing early. Yeah, you're playing early, and you're you know you probably only have what a thirty minute, forty five minute set tops, right? Uh, being two or three down on the bill, um, it, it's hard to say. You know, I mean, I guess if the uh, I guess if the artist has a lot of money in their bank account, and uh, I, I I don't I don't see a problem with it if that's what they want to do. You know, I, I can see where it could work for them, and I could also see it where it may not help them at all, depending right. on. I mean, because if you if you think about, you know, Ario Speedwagon, Byron Nemeth, and Randy Hulsey on the same bill, first of all, people would probably look at that and say, "Well, let's get there for Byron," but I don't. I, I haven't ever heard of this Randy Hulsey guy, and uh, you know, we certainly want to see the the headliner, right? So. People probably go out to dinner, miss the whole first part of the show, right? So you paid all this money to be on this, attached to this tour, and what's the ROI on that? I don't see that the ROI would be very good. I mean, personally, as, but as a business guy, that's my number one question. Absolutely. You know, what's, what's the ROI on it? 
And, and remember, some some of these costs for these quote unquote avails, as they call them, meaning availables, avails is what the term is in the music industry. You know, it's five figures, Randy, if you could imagine that, you know, just think about that for a second. You know, what's the ROI on that? It's just like, wow, I, I can't believe that that's even a situation in the music business. And now what's going on is you've got two groups of situations. The unsigned act that, that's trying to do it themselves, where they're getting that money from, I don't know. Rich uncle, whatever, I don't know. Yeah. And for recently signed acts, labels are doing that. Their, okay. their methodology of, of putting the band on tour, but obviously that's at a cost to the band in yeah. the contract. Sure. And you know sure. that that's got to be recouped at some point somehow down down the road. So labels are getting involved in in, in the music business now, at, you know, in that aspect and then taking a piece of the artist's career. And I don't know if that's a good idea. That sounds, uh, that sounds a little a little shitty to me. You know, it's like, well, I'm going to put them out there and we're trying to get this artist to make money for the label. The label says, you know, we'll front you the money, but we're going to get, we're not only going to get it back, but we're probably going to get it back twofold, right? Somehow, right? You know, that's, you know, the contract is all written in their favor. There's because they would be dumb business people if it wasn't written in their favor, right? And where, where it starts is that merchandise. You know, Absolutely. they want a piece of merchandise and questions how much and how big of a percentage, right? Sure. So, so it's just bizarre land world of the music business that we're in right now. And, and, and I'm, I'm like many artists trying to navigate that because I want to tour, but I don't want to tour at a loss. No. And I don't want to be used by anybody because obviously I wouldn't let that happen. You know, that just would never happen. But I see it with other bands and what's happening to them and their emotional state after it. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's like, wow, you know, they're not in a good spot. Well, I don't know about the metrics of it. Let's say I, so I had Joel Hoekstra from Whitesnake on my show not too long ago. So let's pick on Whitesnake for a minute. If, David Coverdale called you tomorrow, and this is a dumb hypothetical scenario, called you tomorrow and said, you want to go out on a, on a 20-city tour, and you had $50,000 in the bank, there's, there's no way to guarantee your ROI on that. I mean, it sounds great on paper, like, oh, I'm opening for Whitesnake, that's great, but there's nothing written in there that says you will be returned that 50 grand, you will make 50 grand back at right. least to cover your cost, right. there, there's no guarantee. So at the end of the day, it's a crapshoot uh, of whether you take that chance. Are you a gambler or are you not a gambler? I guess is what it boils down to. I'm not really a gambler, so I don't know that I would take that, but that's yeah, just me. I'm, I'm not a gambler either. I'm an investor for sure. And and in business, there's something called calculated risk based Absolutely. on the ROI. Absolutely. So it seems to me that the calculated risk, the way this scenario is set up, is really too high. Yeah, it really is. Cause I don't think the bands, especially the independent ones that are doing it themselves and paying for it themselves are, are getting the ROI that they really should be getting. And it's an abusive system. I think my yeah. opinion. It yeah. Really I mean, is. if you, if you take a simple scenario and I'm, I'm just going to throw out a, a simple number, a place local to Vegas says, Hey Byron, you want to come play a, a solo show with your acoustic guitar and we'll pay you a hundred dollars uh, to come down for an hour and play. I mean, if it takes you three minutes to get there, you're not really spending any gas. They have all the gear. It might make sense to you to go down and play for a hundred bucks, right? It's easy. You say easy hundred bucks. But if you start factoring everything in, well, I've got to drive an hour outside of the city of Vegas to get to the venue. I got to bring my, my own stuff, set up my stuff, tear down my stuff. That hundred bucks is no longer worth your time is, is my point. 
And it, and it all goes back to what you're talking about. There's no guarantee. You, you can't even wrap your mind around how you would get your money back on that. You would hope that you would be in on a bill with, with white snake, but maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. And are you willing to take that chance or not? I guess what's your, what's your tolerance of loss? I mean, if your tolerance of loss and you've got, you know, a couple of million in the bank, eh, 50,000 bucks ain't, you know, it doesn't amount to shit to some people, you know, they, they would take that risk in a heartbeat. But for the person that only has $50,000 in their savings account, and it costs 50 to go out with them. Eh, I don't know about that, man. That's not a very good calculated risk there as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. And, and this, and this is the status of where we sit yeah. with, with the new music business, you know, it's just biz- truly bizarre land. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. It really is. On, on the flip side, recording costs have come down. And if you're independent, what has gone up is advertising costs. I would consider this conversation, Turing, like an advertising cost conversation. Sure. You know? So now we can save money by recording more efficiently and smartly. But now to get yourself out amongst all the clutter on the internet has increased, I think. Well, I think it's maybe it's not one and the same, but it's kind of the same where some people will go out on social media and buy followers, right? And then there's others like myself and probably you too that are we just let it grow organically. I'm not paying for fake accounts to follow me. Like I don't right. give two shits about that. And you could relate that back to you could either like yourself build your name, build your brand play local, grow organically, or you could dip into the bank account and pay to get on one of these bills. That's the two ways that we could do it, both from a touring perspective and something as simple as just growing your your social media following, right? I, I don't believe in, I don't think I do either one of them. I'm, I'm not paying somebody to follow me that doesn't care anything about my show. The people that follow me genuinely, I think, care about hearing the artists that I'm talking to and care about what I'm doing. And there's, there's nobody there that doesn't want to be there is, is my yeah. point. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and one thing about paying for followers, and, and this is one of the, one great knowledge base um, thought here that I have as being a web, web guy, web designer is, you know, paying for followers, music or otherwise, or any other business, that's a complete waste of time. A- sure. AI is getting so good. Yeah. So incredibly, incredibly good that you're going to get busted for that. So don't do that out there. Yep. If you, if you, you music guys out there, if you're paying for followers, don't do that. Yep. <laughs> it's not a good idea. It's just not. I saw an artist not too long ago that had, let, let's just call it a hundred thousand followers. And then like three months later, there was like 210,000 followers on Instagram. And I'm thinking, there's no fucking way. There's no way. I, I mean, not that quick. You know, I could understand you maybe growing that over time with, you know, if you're, you know, a big name act or something. But and and so it's almost anybody can see right through that. Like, I don't believe that for a minute. Those people are not real. The accounts are not real. They're all in India or wherever they are. And right. they've made no post on Instagram. It says zero right. by post. That tells you right there it's not a legit account, right? Uh, yeah, that's not a good good thing to do. Best thing to do, to do is uh, to hire a public relations person to work for you. I agree. That's, that's what I've done, and that's what I'm doing for my book. And I'm going to send them this this interview when we're you know whenever you publish it. And that's how you work it. That's Absolutely. really how you work social media organically and to some degree. 
uh, paying for very well-targeted campaign ads for yes. specific things that you're willing to take a, a low-risk uh, situation with. Yeah, I, I, I find that to be perfectly within the, uh, I, I guess, the guidelines of legit, right? I mean, that's yeah, people do right. that, but... I mean, paying for fake people to, to make them look bigger than they are. I mean, that's, first of all, it's deceitful. You're building your brand on deceit. And if I looked you up, if I fell in love with your music on YouTube or wherever, Byron, and then I looked you up and, and looked at your Instagram and saw that, like Byron has 1 million followers and you start combing through there and it's like, man, like none of these are real, like... Dude, I wouldn't give you the time of day. I mean, but to me, you're a phony and yeah, you're, you know, maybe you're a great guitar player, but you're, you're buying people. And I don't, I mean, it just kind of goes, it kind of goes against, you know, what I believe to be the way to do business. And that's just me. That's not right, wrong or indifferent, but, uh, sounds like you agree with that to a certain degree, right? Oh, completely. Yeah, totally. Don't don't worry, Randy. AI is going to fix all that. real soon. (laughs) It's going to, it's going to weed out the, uh. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Not just stuff, but for other businesses too. It's going to clean all that clutter up. I think that's in the process of happening now. We should have that, I think, cleaned out within the next year or two. I think. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned earlier uh, byronnemeth.com. Where else can the listeners find you on social media? What platforms do you live on mainly? I'm on all of them, and it's just the at sign Byron Nemeth. That's it. Okay. Very- very straightforward. Simple enough. Yeah. A couple of quick fire questions for you, then I'm going to let you get back to your, the rest of your labor day there. But I was wondering, um, these are usually intended to just be a simple answer and and kind of fun. Maybe something that people didn't know about you that follow you around. But, uh, do you remember what your worst subject might've been in school? Um, attending. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we'll move right along then. Uh, that's a great answer. I love it. Uh, attending in general, yeah. Uh, how about my life? Right. How about uh, favorite food for you? Do you have a favorite one? Oh my God, where do we begin? Jesus, you know, I like I like everything that's cooked really well, whether it's a dinner okay. item or or breakfast item. Okay, all right. So you're not a picky eater, then it sounds like. Only the quality of how it's put together. There you go. Yeah, that's from picky. Do you have a routine and how you start your day? What do you do when you wake up in the mornings normally? Usually, I have a you know I have my schedule patterned out really well on my calendar, so I know like week weeks in advance and sometimes months in advance, like with this interview, what's happening. So the very first thing that I do is I get up and I work out. I'm, a, I'm an avid yogi. I've been doing yoga for a long time, and that's a great thing for, for maintaining health. And I run a lot, and I, I take, care of, uh, take care of myself all the time. Then I drink a little bit of coffee. Then I turn on the computer and um, see uh, what, what I have to do next with either a website client or what I'm doing the next thing with my music career. Yeah, I think that's really cool that you've uh you've you've managed to make your living kind of in the almost in the confines of your your four walls there right and that's really cool that you're you're able to do that i guess some would call that living the dream you know um and and i think a lot of people that are self-employed doing their doing their thing 
you know, you don't you don't have to make a lot of money uh, sometimes to to be happy, right? At the end of the day, and what, whether you're making a lot doing web design, whether you're making a little, at the end of the day, if you're happy, it doesn't matter. And I think that that's cool that you've uh, you you figured out what your your niche is and where your strengths are, and you're you're exercising those. And uh, so that's very commendable. Congrats to you on that. Cool. Thank you so much. I've worked very hard to have it at this level, and and it's it's uh, it's a wonderful thing, Randy, because I can work from anywhere in the world. I just need a Wi-Fi connection. Absolutely. I've, I've even worked on tour mm-hmm. on time off while traveling, so it's a great setup. It's a it's a very symbiotic relationship between both of the careers. Yeah, and and I say that quite often uh, to people in my eight to five. Uh, job, you know, all I need is a chair and a Wi-Fi connection and a cell phone, and I could work from a cruise ship or in Paris or at the zoo. It doesn't matter to me, right? At the end of the day, sure sounds good. <laughs> yeah, right for sure. Well, listen, Byron, stick around. I I, I want to thank you for joining me on the show, and I also ask the listeners to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Also, don't forget to follow Byron on all of his social media platforms, including ByronNemeth.com, as well as at ByronNemeth on all of the other platforms, Facebook, Instagram, uh, so on and so forth. I also want to thank you guys for tuning in. As a reminder, you can follow the show on Facebook at Backstage Pass Radio Podcast, on Instagram at Backstage Pass Radio Twitter at Backstage Pass PC and on the website at BackstagePassRadio.com. You guys stay safe and healthy, and thank you again for tuning in to Backstage Pass Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Make sure to follow Randy on Facebook and Instagram at Randy Halsey Music and on Twitter at R Halsey Music. Also make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on alerts for upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share the link with a friend and tell them Backstage Pass Radio is the best show on the web for everything music. We'll see you next time right here on Backstage Pass Radio.